All right, so um, we are continuing in uh, the, uh, not the gospel, we're continuing in Genesis, the Genesis track. And uh, we begin two weeks of stories that are uh, not easy this week. So occasionally I will uh, listen to someone else preach or hear someone talk about Christianity or scripture, and I hear them talk about it in such a way where they lay out kind of what a straightforward and easy story it is, right? And when they, when they present that, even as someone who's now been doing this a very long time and has spent a lot of time studying scripture and talking about theology and those kind of things, it, it just, it, um, it resonates with me. I want that to be true. It, it just kind of, it tickles my ear a little bit. I'm always excited to hear it. And then I make a big mistake, which is then I will open the Bible and I will read whatever story they're talking about, or I'll just read the Bible in general and be reminded once again, it is just not that easy or straightforward. Uh, scripture is, is tough. Uh, it is, it is, there are areas of Scripture that are really difficult, right? The next two weeks, we're going to look at stories that defy all easy interpretations. Um, I wish that they were not a part of the lecture. They could have skipped them. Most of us skip them and don't talk about them uh, for these reasons, but I wish they weren't because they are, if I'm allowed to say such thing about the Bible, they are awful stories. I wish they weren't there. I wish I didn't, wasn't going to talk about them. But here they are, and we shouldn't run away from it, right? This is our text. And so I would like to uh, say ahead of time that I believe both of these stories to be more descriptive than prescriptive, right? I'm not, I'm not, we're not going to talk about these stories and then have you go out and say, now you go out and do what is done here. There are parts of the Bible that are just descriptive, and there's not, it's not that we can't learn from them, but just know that it is not giving you a job to go and do. Uh, not that you have a slave girl and son to go send to the wilderness in your own life, but if you did, this is not a prescriptive story. But if you read these stories and begin to even ask the most cursory of follow-up questions to what's happening here, you can get to some pretty horrifying places pretty quick, right? Uh, it's less than comfortable. But to be honest, it's one of the things that has kept me interested and one of the things I like the most about the Bible. When I read the Bible, I find that it provokes as many questions as it does provide answers. In fact, you might argue to me that Scripture is here to help us ask the right questions, not give us all the right answers, right? And there was a time when this messiness really threw me for a loop. It's not the way I was brought up to think about Scripture. It's not the way I was taught Scripture. And it made me question whether there was any value to Scripture whatsoever. But now it's what part of what, to me, gives Scripture some authority. Uh, it's a testament uh, to its truth, I think. Because generally speaking, life defies easy explanation. Most of us are walking embodiments of that truth. As much as we like stories that are kind of simple and straightforward, we like the good guys fighting the bad guys and the good guys win in the end, that appeals to us on some level, it's just not true very often. It's not the way the world works. It's not that simple. And today's story is a very good example uh, of how hard it is to just have that good guy, bad guy, good guys win kind of narrative that we sometimes like to find in the Bible or try to find in the Bible. So we are in Genesis chapter 21, verses 8 through 15. You remember that we have talked about the calling of Abraham. We've talked about the promise made to Abraham that he's going to have uh, generations and nations that come from him how he and his wife are unable to have children, how they are elderly. And then last week, 
the, uh, the story of Sarah laughing, his wife laughing, because she finally finds out that it's actually her who's supposed to have the kids at 90, having never had kids or been able to have kids, and she laughs, right? And we talked last week about comedy invading tragedy, and I would tell you to go watch it on uh, like YouTube or on, you know, when we upload the videos from each week, but I totally forgot to do that this week. So it'll be up uh, probably tomorrow, and you can catch up on two weeks. I know you'll, you'll want to re-listen to the sermon you just heard. Anyways, we're in Genesis chapter 21, verses 8 through 15. Uh, you remember that both Sarah, uh, that Sarah had decided when she knew that Abraham was supposed to have all these children, she obviously could not be the one to do it. She was elderly, could not have kids, and so they came up with a plan B. She gave her servant, her slave, to uh, Abraham and said, let's have kids through her. Kind of a forced surrogacy, right? And so Hagar gets pregnant, has Ishmael. And then after that happens, Sarah finds out, no, 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 she's the one who's supposed to be pregnant, so you never needed to do the plan B, right? That's where we're at in the story. She, Sarah has now had the baby, Isaac, named Laughter, because of what happened when she found out she was going to be pregnant. And then here's what happens next. <coughs> the child, that's Isaac, grew and was weaned. That essentially means he made it through the really hard part back in those days, right? A good chance of him surviving at this point. The child grew and was weaned, and Abraham made a great feast on the day that Isaac was weaned. But Sarah saw the son of Hagar, the Egyptian, whom she had borne to Abraham, playing with her son Isaac. So she said to Abraham, cast out this slave woman with her son, for the son of this slave woman shall not inherit along with my son Isaac. The matter was very distressing. The matter was very distressing to Abraham on account of his son. But God said to Abraham, Do not be distressed because of the boy and because of your slave woman. Whatever Sarah says to you, do as she tells you. For it is through Isaac that offspring shall be named for you. As for the son of the slave woman, I will make a nation of him also because he is of your offspring. So Abraham rose early in the morning and took, a, uh, took bread and a skin of water and gave it to Hagar, putting it on her shoulder along with the child and sent her away. And she departed, wandering about in the wilderness of Beersheba. When the water in the skin was gone, she cast the child under one of the bushes. Then she went and sat down opposite of him a good way off, about the distance of a bow shot. For she said, do not let me look on the death of my child. And as she sat opposite him, she lifted up her voice and wept. And God heard the voice of the boy. And the angel of God called to Hagar from heaven and said to her, What troubles you, Hagar? Do not be afraid, for God has heard the voice of the boy where he is. Come, lift up the boy and hold him fast with your hand, for I will make a great nation of him. Then God opened up her eyes and she saw a well of water. She went and filled the skin with water and gave the boy a drink. God was with the boy and he grew up. He lived in the wilderness and became an expert with the bow. He lived in the wilderness of Paran, and his mother got a wife for him from the land of Egypt. For the word of God in Scripture, for the word of God among us, for the word of God within us. Thanks, Thanks be to God. God. There is so much about this story I dislike. Chief of which is the awful way that Hagar and Ishmael are treated. For reasons that are not hard to understand, Hagar has historically become a bit of a patron saint, particularly for black women in America. After all, her story sounds too familiar to the African-American experience in this country. 
As a young girl, she is botched from her home and her agency, her free will taken away from her, right? She now belongs to a foreign family who will demand of her whatever advances their cause. She is forced to live where they do, travel whenever they want to travel, however dangerous it might be, go wherever they decide she needs to go. She is now without her home, her family, her people, her customs, or anything else that belongs to her. She is not her own. She's defined by servanthood, by slavery. If you've been attending Wednesday nights, she is firmly in quadrant two. All vulnerability, no authority. Imagine being Hagar. You're in this situation. You were owned by someone else, taken from your own family, no free will. And then the childless octogenarian that you work for and that owns you demands that you marry her elderly husband. You are to serve him. You are to be made available to him. Essentially, you're to help this old foreign man breed, for lack of a better term. It's forced surrogacy. And somehow, when you are forced to be made available to him, this old man that you don't get to say no to actually gets you pregnant. Then you go through that. Nine difficult months. No hospitals, no midwives, none of the things that we have today. Just nine difficult months of pregnancy while you're out on the road and a dangerous birth in the middle of nowhere with none of your family around. But as awful as all of that was, when it's all said and done, you do have this beautiful baby boy. He's yours. You finally have some family of your own again. Real joy. But now, the woman who forced you to sleep with her husband begins to really mistreat you. Even though it was her idea of this whole thing in the first place, it wasn't like you were looking for a hundred-year-old guy to hook up with. She's angry at you for doing the things she forced you to do. It gets so bad, so bad with her that eventually you flee. You take your child and you run with your son into the wilderness. Because being alone in the wilderness with your child feels more safe and less vulnerable than being with your master. Miraculously, while you're out in the wilderness, you meet God. Your prayers for salvation are answered. God reassures you that your child will be blessed. This is such a monumental moment that you become the only person, the only person in all the Old Testament scriptures who is given the opportunity to name God. And you name God El Roy. El Roy means the God who sees. You name God out in the wilderness. And after this miraculous encounter, you go back to your owners with your baby and the promise that God has given you, the God that you got to give a name. Maybe you even begin to feel like you have a home now that you know that there's a future, you have your son, things aren't perfect, but maybe you have a place in the world now. And then, this old woman who forced you upon her husband, gets pregnant. The most miraculous thing, she has a baby of her own. 
This is maybe the best possible thing that can happen because now she can focus her attention elsewhere. She can stop taking out her frustrations on you. You can help her take care of the baby. I don't know, maybe even be a wet nurse. I don't know what happens at this point. Everything is going to be okay. Just when you start to feel like you've got your feet underneath you, just when you feel like you can begin to hold your head up around the people with whom you live, you get comfortable enough to feel like your son can play with their son, that they can laugh and have a good time together, as children should do. Your owner flies off the handle. She has you thrown into the wilderness with essentially nothing, left to die. It gets so desperate, and your child is so close to death that you leave him on his own. Something unimaginable for a mother to do. You leave him on his own because it's too painful for you to watch what happens next. You cry out. The only good thing you've ever had, the thing that you were promised would become something else, is about to be taken away. And once again, God hears your cries. God hears your son's cries. God shows up and is faithful to the promise God made to you. Your bloodline goes on. Historical impact from you and your child that you would have never chosen in the way that it happened. You can understand why she's so beloved by some, can't you? Why she's so heroic to so many. You can think about things from her perspective and also understand why maybe you would have the opinion that Sarah should probably be dragged out of town to pay for her sins. I'm talking about the Sarah in the story here. My Sarah and I are just fine. <laughs> How awful is Sarah? <laughs> this, this sermon could be going a whole different direction if I wasn't talking about a story. <laughs> Can I get an amen? <laughs> How awful is Sarah here? I mean, there is zero doubt that you can call her rightfully cruel, inhumane, but let's not forget Sarah's tragic story as well. Sarah's story, as we talked about last week, is no easy one. As a woman entering into the final years of her life, she has a lifetime of disappointment and shame. The world she was born into valued her largely on whether or not she could produce children. By this measure, she has failed spectacularly. And there is no easy way to go through this. She has spent a lifetime watching others effortlessly get what she most wanted and couldn't have. She watched her friends' kids' kids come into being while she had no children of her own. What exactly was her purpose in this world? As an old woman, her husband is promised by God to have a large family and lineage. So she is now verified by God to have been the actual problem. She's the obstacle for which her husband should not have had to deal She knows that she can't make this dream happen, so she makes an awful decision. She looks around and decides she must take things into her own hands. And as painful as it might have been to her as a wife for so long, she gives the young, pretty, healthy slave girl to her husband of decades so that he can get what is promised to him, since she can't do it for him. After a lifetime of marriage to the man she was committed to, she watches as this young girl becomes what amounts to a sister wife, for lack of a better term. 
Of course, because she's young and healthy, and this is how the world works, she's pregnant quickly. So Abraham can still have kids. It hasn't been his problem this whole time. You've been the cursed one. This young servant is, of course, one of those people who somehow looks better pregnant. As her belly grows, she glows. She waddles around, and it feels like her entire existence is rubbing your failures in your face. That which you have ached for, prayed for, wept for your entire life just becomes an effortless reality for the one who is supposed to exist to make your life better. Oh yeah, while you're traveling around and all this is happening, your husband comes upon someone that he fears, so he lies to them and tells them that you are his sister and lets them take you as their wife for a while. That will take some serious marriage counseling. Suddenly later, God shows up and says that you, 90-year-old Sarah, will actually be the one who gives birth to the nations. You laugh, but it actually happens. It's great news. It's a miracle. And as happy as you are, as ecstatic as you are that this is finally a reality for you, you're old and you're tired and you just can't get that slave girl and her baby out of your mind. Honestly, she glowed. You look kind of ridiculous pregnant. You're too old to glow. Too old to get down on the floor and play. You don't get to do the things she does so easily. As you get closer and closer to giving birth, to laughter, there is still this daily reminder that you never needed to give that girl to Abraham in the first place. You didn't need a plan B. All the shame, all the disappointment, all the self-hatred that you've wrestled with your entire life is now back because you were too faithless to wait on God to do a miracle that God promised that pretty little slave girl could have remained just that. Instead, this young, healthy, strong mother parades around you with all the energy and life you couldn't possibly muster anymore. Her son acts like he owns the place, like he's on level playing ground with your son of the promise. One day you see him laughing and playing with your chosen son, and it's just too much. You can't take it anymore. You snap. How can your family become what they are supposed to become as long as she and her son were around, as long as she is flaunting this in front of you? What's going to happen when the older, stronger boy starts viewing your miracle as a competition? What happens when he realizes that technically he is the older son and he should be the rightful heir? No. Now, we can't live into the promise that God has made until we get past this mistake. They have to go. They're gone. They have to be gone. Don't worry. God said it's okay. He'll take care of it. I mean, what a mess, right? Wouldn't this story be better if there was one likable person? Wouldn't this story be better if it was just a little cleaner? If Sarah was a little more virtuous? If our heroes acted like heroes? Wouldn't it be better if Sarah didn't act out of her own insecurity and pain? Wouldn't it be better if hurt people didn't hurt people all the time? Wouldn't the story be more palatable if God did something a little differently? If God used this opportunity to teach everyone about the evils of slavery and end it once and for all, that would have been nice. 
Or if God had just stopped bad things from happening to Hagar and Ishmael instead of showing up at the last second when they're lying dead, almost dead in the wilderness. That'd have been a good way to do it, right? That'd make it a little nicer. Wouldn't Abraham be a better hero? Wouldn't we love him a little more if he just showed one ounce of a single bone in his back during this entire thing? If he protected his oldest son and just, instead of just saying God will take care of him? If he would just argue about something, anything, if he'd argue for anything just once? That would all make this story a little cleaner and nicer. I could do a much better job writing this than the, these people did living it. A cleaned up version of this story would be preferable, right? Maybe a sitcom version where even the most difficult of situations is wrapped up in a nice little bow in 22 minutes, including commercials. It would all be a whole lot less messy, and it would definitely be a lot easier to preach. I think it would. But it also wouldn't ring true. Because the truth is, as much as we love the sitcoms that wrap up quickly, human stories are messy stories. The good guys and the bad guys are often very hard to tell apart. The heroes often turn out to not be who we thought. The reasons why we act the way we do are often mysterious and messy. We are a mess. But remember, and the story that is going through Genesis that we are looking at over these few weeks, remember the question at stake here is not whether or not our stories are neat and are clean, whether or not we are heroes who float a foot above the ground and are inspirational for all the right reasons. The question at stake is whether God is faithful in the midst of our terrible messes. The question at stake is whether God is faithful in the midst of our terrible messes. And to this question, this story, and the rest of Genesis answers unambiguously, yes. Abraham, more often than not, is a little spineless and dubious, and yet God is faithful. Sarah seems intent on redistributing her own pain on the person whom she has power over, and yet God is faithful. Hagar is a nobody in this world. Hagar is not a main character even in the story that will be told in Genesis. She is unimportant in every measurable way that society in this story really should have. And yet, God is faithful. God hears her. God blesses her child. She gets to name God. This Egyptian slave who embodies Sarah's mistake and lack of faith. To her, God is faithful. God is faithful to the, one, the ones whose names and stories we all know and celebrate. And God is faithful to those whose stories fade from history. God is faithful. We are a mess. We are full of pain and disappointment and contradictions and anger and hurt and cowardice and pride and pain and everything else. We are a mess. But God is true. God is faithful. And that is the story of Genesis. The story of Genesis is that while we are a good and true mess, 
somehow God will keep taking our messes and make something beautiful out of them. Let's pray. God, we, uh, we confess. Not that there is any doubt, but we confess uh, that we are messy. That not a single one of us in this room has all the answers, that none of us are heroic in all the ways we wish we were. That none of our stories are a straight line. And that we have as many questions as we do answers. God, we are grateful that you love us as we are. And we are grateful that you love us too much to leave us as we are. That you are in the midst of taking our messes and doing something with them. But God, we are most thankful that you are faithful. That while we create messes, while we are victimized by other people's messes, that while we all run around and hurt each other and abuse each other and neglect each other, that you are still weaving our mess into something beautiful. God, we are grateful that you are faithful. Even at our darkest moments, may we not forget it. But we do love you and we ask all these things in your name. Amen.